You're listening to Unlocking Our Sound Heritage and Voices from the Fishing, brought to you by Manx National Heritage, the charity responsible for the Isle of Man's natural and cultural heritage. The sound recordings you'll hear today and throughout this series on Manx Radio are part of a unique collection of around 600 sound recordings digitised from the Manx National Heritage Sound Archive and available online thanks to Unlocking Our Sound Heritage, a UK-wide project to preserve and provide access to thousands of rare and unique sound recordings. Funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and led by the British Library, Manx National Heritage is grateful to its audio preservation partner at National Museums Northern Ireland and our listening volunteers for enabling this remarkable sound archive to be enjoyed for free for the first time online. The Unlocking Our Sound Heritage team at Manx National Heritage hope you enjoy eavesdropping on the voice clips we've chosen from the nation's sound archive, all of which can be listened to in full at imuseum.im. The Isle of Man harbours were once forests of masts. Let's begin with a boyhood memory of the sailing boats ready to set sail for the fishing grounds, as recalled by John Gorn of Fistard. Well, <coughs> when we were all ready, uh, it was a wonderful sight to see them when I was a boy, when we were all ready to go down to Kinsale, uh, Castle Heaven, Bear Heaven, and Finnet, Valencia, Bantry, and Tralee. He went to all the imports. It's a wonder to see them, you know. They would be all painted like yachts. And their spars all scraped and iled. And it's a fine sight. Mm. I wish I could see it again. A fine sight indeed. But what of the crew and the catch? Jack Madrill of Glen Chass in this recording from 1954, remembers his skipper breaking a looking glass when they were at harbour in Lerwick. Bad luck or not? And the skipper was having a shield. Now, for to do that, he had to have the, the, the looking glass stuck up on the, on the water gauge of the boiler. And she gave a bit of a snug to the key, so boat passed it or something, and she gave a little bit of a snug to the key, and down comes the looking glass on the on the boiler fire front and it smashed in thousands of pieces. <laughs> oh, we got in the tetherance at once that we were finished, we could go home now and we could do this and we could do that and we could do the other. And uh, when he cooled off, he said, here's his children, he said, go and buy a looking glass, he said, and don't say a word about it. Well, I went and done the message fetched the new looking glass down. I got one as near the size and colour as the other one was. It could be. So I fetched it down and uh, there wasn't a word spoken about the looking glass. He never took any notice to it because it was practically the same. So the following week <laughs> we got as much herring as we could handle. And uh, I said to the skipper when he was doing the same thing the following Saturday, I says, let's break the, 
Let's break the dances right now. We are lucky this week. <laughs> Just for fun, I said it. And he says, only for that, he said, we'd have had twice as much. <laughs> and we couldn't, if we would have got twice as much, we couldn't have handled them. Yes. Superstitions and fishing were once as plentiful as the herring. Perhaps for some Manx fishermen, the odd superstition still rings true. John Gorn again of Fistard. On the night of the 11th of May, they used to be, when they, when they had the nets all shut and the hole empty, they used for to get to, a torch, a piece of uh, oakum or waste or any rag, soaked in paraffin oil and tied on a piece of stick and they used to go around every crevice in the boat burning the witches out. I've seen that done about 54 or 5 years ago. It was done in every boat then, I suppose. They had a lot of superstitions. Now, for instance, when you're going out at the harbour, you would never turn the boat's head against the sun. Always go round with the sun. They never liked to be the third boat leaving either. They'll be known for to tie two of them together, I believe, but I've never seen that done. But uh, it was the case, right enough. But however, they had lots of other superstitions. If you would take certain animals aboard of the boat, it was unlucky. You had to speak of them even, such as rats, cats, mice, or anything of that sort. And even to have a white stone on the ballast, they wouldn't allow that. And a, and a stone, a clish stone, as they, as they were calling it for the tie to the nets, they would never think of putting a white stone there. Whatever was the, was the reason for it, I don't know. But I remember one time with the nets out in the field and there was a rabbit caught in it, a little rabbit. And he said we would have no luck that season, but we were wrong. Mr H. Corkill of Douglas, recorded about half a century ago for the Manx Folklife Survey, started fishing as a boy cook, under sail, out of Port St Mary. What follows are his vivid memories of the boat, the crew and the shooting of the nets. Then the skipper would say, what do you say boys, we take sail? Oh, let her run a bit, one of them would say. Let her run a bit longer yet, Skipper. Or not on three crank yet, and let her run. And then we'd run. Well, all right, take sail. I'd just put the sail down. And we'd then we'd uh, get the sail off her. And we'd start then to get everything all right, lower the sail, and get everything with the nets prepared then. And we'd put the nets. Now every man was to a position. The cook had to go down to look after the spring back that was underneath. You see, that was the rope coming up where the net was fastened onto to keep the net in, in position on the bottom and then there was two men putting the uh, shooting the cockbacks and then one man would be shooting the underbacks that's the, the cockbacks at the top of the net where the cocks are and the other man would be shooting the underbacks there'd be another man to the buoys and there'd be another to the buoys that is the uh, the floats around of supper and after supper there's always a verse of a hymn or two verses of a hymn and prayer if there's a man in, a man there that was taking prayer or a man that was going to the prayer meetings, he would take the prayer himself. 
But otherwise, it was silent prayer. And then you would always have the prayer and the, and the verse of a hymn. And then after that, that's what they called finishing the day. Mm. But uh, I'm going before my story. Yeah. When we were out, we weren't allowed to shoot until the, uh, till the sunset. Mm. And once the sun would start to set, every man would stand on deck with his hat off and say, We thank thee, O God, for the day that's passed and gone and for all the blessings thou hast given us. Be thou with us in the day that is to come. For Christ's sake, amen. And then when the sun would go down, we'd put our hats on, and then we'd start to shoot. And down round about, and I wouldn't get no sleep. Cooks would get no sleep. They'd be all talking and well, thinking that the young police would turn in of an afternoon for a bit of an hour, but they'd be all talking. I got night time at night then. They'd be all talking. They'd be turned in at night. And there were some of them with long whiskers on them. I remember one man with a long whisker on him. And I went up and looked in his book, and he said, What are they wanting there? What are they wanting, young fellow? He said, I was only looking to see John with the sleep with the whisker under the bed, or on top of the bed. He came out of the bed and chased me. I was out after chickens and out after the thing. And when he came down to the back fishing, as they called the back fishing, that's when the heron were getting spent and when they were spawning. We used to use a two fathom or a one and a half fathom, because they didn't believe in going down to the bottom for the heron. The fisherman said that the heron were like a woman or like an ordinary person. They were down there, the spawn, mm. and when they stopped down there for, five, for three or four, two or three days, they were sick in childbirth, the same as a, a human being was. Mm. And that's the way sometimes you'll get heron and they're black to the bone. They shouldn't be fished off the bottom. Now, when I was cooked first, I was down there, I was down coiling the rope, what they call the springback. And uh, I'd go, it was Monday morning, and after they had eaten pop and cakes and all at home with my mother, and I felt a bit sick, so one of them said, I believe the cook is sick. Navas is one of them. So Tom Bueller come down, and he said, What's wrong with thee, boy? I said, I'm not feeling well, Tom. <laughs> he said, There's no such thing as seasickness. It's freckin' the war, he said. Freckin' the war. He said, I'll take the fear out of thee, he said, and he took a rope end, and he belted my behind that I was freckin' to be sick afterwards. That's the way they used to do with this. Um, you're frightened to be sick afterwards. That was hard treatment. It was. Well, that's what they used to do, but it done us good. Had they no cure for seasickness? No, there's no cure for sickness, the seasickness. The only thing they used to do was, was just go up in the bow to the boat and then uh, if they were seasick, was have a cup of tea without sugar or milk in it, just so that they'd drink a tea and then it would, it would come up again and mm. get right in the bow to the boat, which you'd be jumping up and down and up and down all the time. And that's the only way, only way you could cure it. You'd have to get used to it. You'd also have to get used to the hard physical effort of fishing in a time before motorised winches. Edward Christian, born in Ramsey in 1907 and recorded in 1989, is here in conversation with Walter Clark from the Manx Museum, talking about fishing with line and hook off Ramsey. You know the length of the long line? And yes, that? yeah. When you think of it, they would walk on 800 hooks. Yes. Yes. It's a lot of work in it. Yeah. Four lines. Yeah. A mile. Yes. I know my father told me once that there was one Easter and there, it was flat calm, there was no wind. And uh, three or four days they rowed out and rowed to shoot the, the lines and rowed to haul them and rowed back again. Huh. And Jimmy Bradford told me that he was fishing then 
and he remembers after coming in on the Thursday before Good Friday and rowing all the way back in with the for about the fourth time with the shot of fish, he went home, he sat down, and Beanie filled a basin of tea for him, there were basins yeah. then, not cups, and he said he just sat there looking at it and he never drank it to this day. He was asleep before he could even touch it. And she just covered him up in the chair and left him there. Aye. It was hard work, Walter. Well, and those fellas would be coming in, you see. If you get an old paper or an old courier mm. and have a look at the fish being landed in Ramsey yeah. in those days, it was four score. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the master Frank landed four score. Yes. That was 80 fish. Uh, yeah. Or another fellow might have five score, a hundred yeah. cod. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was a ton of fish. Yes, yes. They were big fish, weren't they? Yeah. Yes. Now just imagine pulling yeah. a big boat. Yes. And a ton. Yeah. Pulling a ton through the water coming back. Yes. Oh, yes. It's a lot of hard work in it. Skill, and not just brute strength, makes a fisherman, none more so than off the coast of the Isle of Man, when sailing by the soles of your feet, in a fog, required fishermen to improvise. Mr Kelly of Garwick remembers those days, navigating as a boy aboard the fishing boat Kitty. But there's one little thing I must mention, well it's not a little thing, it was a very big thing those days, before I closed the saga of the boat. Now... There was no navigational aids of any kind in those days for the fishermen. They had to sail by the soles of their feet and the look of the sky and the smell of the wind. No such thing as uh, ship-to-shore radio or echo sound or anything, but I can't think of bring us home in a fog along the coastline with a very simple method which must have been the origination, I think, of echo sounding. We'd uh, sling a steel mountain spike from the forestay and I'd be up on the foredeck. He'd have the wheel himself, the engine would be going dead slow, and we'd be cruising along the coast. Fog is thick, you couldn't see hardly the, the stern from the bow. And all of a sudden he said to me, give it a bang. Well, I had another mound spike in my hand, and he said, give this mound spike that was hanging a real good whack. The echo would come back off the cliffs, he'd cock his ear to it, and the wheel would either go a little bit to starboard, a little bit to port, and a bit later on, give it another bang, well, give it another bang, and he could tell the echo coming back, Roughly where we were, and you know, he could bring us into Gowick in thick fog and put us right into where we dropped the anchor. It was amazing, really. Many listeners might still remember the barrels of herring stacked up in Peel. Clucas Crellin fondly recalls Peel when he was a boy in the 1920s, and the work of the herring girls and the sheer number of steam drifters packed into Peel Harbour like sardines. Do you remember the herring girls? Yes, yes, yes. They... <coughs> They used to come from Scotland, mostly, and they, they lived in the little cottages down around Market Street and Castle Street and along the Shore Road, and they used to work in, in where, where the fish place is now, in the Mill Road, yes. you know. It, it wasn't laid out like that then, it was just they had sort of troughs. Where, where they used to tip the herring in and, and they used to cut them and put them into barrels and the barrels were stacked there and then they were brought out to the breakwater and wait for the Russian ships to come in and take right. them to Russia and they also had 
before you get to Pinella Beach, there's a sort of a, a, a widening of the, of the quayside. I don't know if it's still got a roof over it. Just before you turn in round to Pinella Beach. Yes. Oh yes, I know, they, yes. They, they used to have a station there for cutting head. Right. And there was another station out on the Great Water. Right. And these girls, they were all tagged in any old clothes at home. And they sort of oil skin aprons. And they had every finger bound round with pieces of rag. Right. But I, I don't know whether it was to protect them, mostly from the salt that was, yes. was put on, on the herring rather than cutting them right, with the yes. knife that they had. Yes. And all, all they used to do to me was they seemed to just take the gills out. They right. didn't seem to take very much that we got out. Yes. The, the soft roll or the hard roll, they were all left in. And it only seemed to be the, the gills that, right. that came away mostly. Then those barrels were filled with gut and they used to take them out to the end of the breakwater and tip them. Yes. And then there used to be shoals of mackerel. Right. All were round waiting but peeled breakwater for this stuff to be right. tipped over. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, it was it was horses and carts moving their barrels of herring right. in, in the early days and then it gradually got round to to uh, sort of motor wagons, right. but not, not so many of them. Do you remember there being any steam trawlers? Oh, I remember Peel, Peel Harbour being packed full of steam trawlers. That, I don't know, that would that be in the 20s or the 30s? The, 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 the most, you, you could walk across from, from the weather glass across the other side, on, just on the decks yes. of, the, of the steam trawlers. They were packed in like sardines. The, I, I th think there's been as many as 110 steam trawlers in periods. But drifters, they were not trawlers. Right. Drifters. When the, when, you know, when the heading season was at its height, end of July and August, just in the beginning of September, and they used to come from all over Scotland, Scotland and Ireland, yes. and Yarm from Yarmouth and Fleetwood, and uh, even even down the, the the east coast of Scotland, they used to come from Lossiemouth and places like that. Right. And even up to just before the war, just before the war started, when the the fishing boats stopped. 2022 marks the 100th anniversary of the opening of the Manx Museum, and so let's end with a story from William Cubbon, one-time director of the Manx Museum, who remembers when he was eight years old in 1873, a telegram delivered to a mother convinced of bad news about her son at the fishing. But let's hear William tell the story, recorded here in 1949. I saw the telegraph man from Port St Mary come to the street with a telegram envelope in his hand. He said, Sonny, where's Mrs. Christian's house? I said, I don't know. There's no Mrs. Christian here. Then I went and told my mother, and she sent the messenger to the house he wanted. I never knew her as Mrs. Christian. I only knew her as Dick Jerry Begg's wife. The sum of one shilling was paid to the post office by receivers of telegrams in those days. Poor Mrs. Christian had no shilling. 
And my mother, to my great joy, went upstairs to a drawer and got the shilling for the messenger. I had, as a youngster, seemed to have developed the quality of a skeet. I was curious to see what would happen. Mrs. Christian, I saw, had put the brown colored envelope on a little round table. She hadn't opened it. I can still see the old body with her shoulder shawl and white apron sitting in her armchair. Tears were, I think, already falling from her eyes. She didn't dare to open the envelope for fear it carried the message that Tom, her youngest boy, had perished in the storm. Her eyes were still kept fastened on the envelope. Looking up, she saw me at the door. And after another spell, she said to me, Go to Mrs. Garry, Willie, and tell her I want her. Mrs. Garry came. She saw the envelope and the crying woman who asked her to open the envelope. Mrs. Garry said she would rather not, as she couldn't read. They both were certain that poor Tom, the favourite of the village, was drowned. Sure enough, the skipper and crew of the Lady Mary had perished off the Tosca. I can still hear the plaintive couche of these two old cronies, the one uttering moans that would be proper at a wake, while rubbing her eyes with her white apron. Mrs. Gary, kind soul she was, comforting her. There were no signs of the envelope being opened. I, being still a silent spectator by the door, was sent to tell my mother to come. She was in the middle of baking soda cakes, but she came at once. She saw the two women sitting at the table, both weeping. Mrs. Christian, pointing to the telegram, asked her to open it. This my mother did, and read the message aloud. It ran, Arrived, can sail, all right. Send me clean shirts by Cowley's Dora. Thanks for listening to Voices from the Fishing. You can visit imuseum.im and click on Unlocking Our Sound Heritage to listen to these and many more sound recordings from the Manx National Heritage Sound Archive. To find out more about the charity Manx National Heritage and how you can support us, visit our website www.manxnationalheritage.im or join us on Facebook. Facebook.